0: Welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, I'm Peter Simons, a news reporter for Madden America, and I'm pleased to have with me today David Cohen. David Cohen is professor of social welfare at the Luskin School of Public Affairs of the University of California, Los Angeles, and also the associate dean for research. He studies the social construction of psychoactive drug effects, the union of law and psychiatry within a medicalization system, and envisages alternatives to the current mental health industrial complex and the medicalization of everyday life. He has also taught in Canada and France, and for over 20 years held a private practice to help people withdraw from psychiatric drugs. His first book, published in 1990, was Challenging the Therapeutic State, Critical Perspectives on Psychiatry and the Mental Health System. His latest book, published in 2013, with colleagues Stuart Kirk and Tomi Gomery, is Mad Science, Psychiatric Coercion, Diagnosis and Drugs. Hi, David, and welcome.
1: Thank you, Peter, for having me.
0: Thank you for being here. So first, I would like to ask about your background. How did you become interested in the mental health field? I know that you do have a social work background, so I was wondering what was your experience in the beginning working with people?
1: So, I started out as um, a social worker in late 1975 in Montreal, Canada, and about uh, nine years later, in 1984, I entered a PhD program in social welfare at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And so, in that intervening time, I was a caseworker and a community organizer in a family counseling agency, in a juvenile court, in a civil liberties association, in a community health center. And in each of those places, I witnessed firsthand how psychiatry was used to excuse misbehavior and to constrain misbehavior. And this was pre-DSM-3. So I can't really say what the mental health field was about because even that expression or mental health field wasn't even that popular. But at that time, there was a lot of ferment about different ways of counseling. There were experiments in family therapy, communication theory, systems thinking. So there was a lot of activity and a lot of different ways people were thinking about how to help people. And I felt part of that. I was steeped into these kinds of of trainings and, uh, and different ideas. But in my first job, very first job, I met with and worked with people that had diagnoses of schizophrenia and were taking prescribed drugs. I didn't even know what they were. But because of my own experiences with psychedelics, I asked these people pretty blunt, simple questions about what they were going through. And they were very happy to educate me. Mm-hmm. And they, I understood that they felt the drugs made them feel different and the drugs made them look different to other people. And I thought there was something there that was interesting. And I was also concerned because some of them expressed that they were forced to take the drugs or felt forced to take the drugs. And that bothered me. I thought, this is a deep experience to take drugs. This, this could be very upsetting to force someone to do that. And so, so all of this raised dozens of questions for me and helped my kind of nascent understanding of the very complex relationships that people establish with drugs. And um, I was also fortunate to have a, a real wise, no-nonsense, psychoanalytically trained supervisor. Her name was Sylvia Benjamin, and she was... Wonderful. She encouraged any questions I had. She didn't seem to mind if I didn't like her explanations for things. Uh, She would say, don't you think this person needs a doctor? And I say, no, I think that's the last thing they need. They need a vacation. They need money in their pocket. They need time off. So she encouraged me to explore elsewhere. And that was the very first job that I had in this field. And, um, And I was reading also at the time these constructivist writings. Uh, Francisco Varela was one. Paul Vatslavik was another. Virginia Satir, people like that. That was my beginning experience in this field.
0: And so, I mean, I can can see how that sort of gives you a through line of starting to be critical of the prevailing medical model, uh, even as that was sort of just starting to be the way that people looked at things sort of in the in the 80s?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so in fact, I mean, that's to be critical of the medical model. I have to say that started earlier. Mm. Without being able to put my finger on it, I have to say that early on in life, because of where I was brought up, because of what I read, I read adventure stories, I read complex things I read. I was quite familiar as a child with the Bible. I was reading it as adventure. It was full of characters. So I already was getting a sense of interpreting issues in family intergenerationally. I was also brought up as a member of a fairly oppressed minority in a faraway land and growing up in this in a very intensely multicultural environment. and. I had a sense early on that the same behavior could mean quite different things to different people depending on where they were standing. So it's like already at an early age for my eyes I got a sense that life was quite complex and intricate socially if you will. And so when as a budding social worker I was observing psychiatrists at work. I was there when they were conducting interviews. I was reading the reports they drafted. I was seeing how they were talking to judges in court hearings, how they were talking to families. It kind of appeared stale to me. It didn't ring true. And I could see no connection to medicine. I mean, some of the buildings were the same, some of the language was the same, but I saw no other connection. And so I thought already at that time in my 20s, early 20s, this needs debunking. And then I fell into a book by Tom Sass, Thomas Sass, called Ceremonial Chemistry. I think that was 1977 that I first read that book. And that book raised a lot of questions and fired me up. And he was way ahead of his time and he was putting all psychoactive drugs, licit and illicit, in the same ecological niche. And he was drawing, I was beginning to draw dots, make links to the effects of drugs and the statuses of drugs. Not so much their their properties and molecules, but just the way they were treated by different groups in different times gave me a sense of maybe that's why they have the effects we attribute to them so it just kind of opened up a way of thinking that was already nascent but I, that I couldn't put words to and uh, so that 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 got me critiquing the medical model i would say for the next few years i turned my attention to studying uh drugs in a in a social anthropological historical manner
0: so i'm i'm i guess i'm wondering how you go from all of, the, all of the reading of those critiques and Thomas Daz to being able to, uh, to write your first book in 1990, to write Challenging the Therapeutic State, like what led up to, to that? Wow.
1: I went and, and collected, it was an edited anthology, and I went to every person that I thought was doing something quite critical. Because at that time in the late 80s, I thought we were just drowning in this medical model. And I thought, wait a minute, I'm seeing other, I'm hearing other sounds. But before that, more important, which is I I, I started to get interested in antipsychotic drugs. And that was, that was way early on. That was, you know, in the, that was as a social work. That was, let's say, 1980, I began to be interested because schizophrenia was for me just the latest word that we were giving to madness and psychiatry was claiming to own the resolution of that problem. They owned schizophrenia and they owned the response to it. And, and their leading response was antipsychotic drugs. What exactly was it about these drugs that made, um, that made all the writings I was reading or most of them quite laudatory and praiseworthy of other drugs. They're talking about it like it's like penicillin. And I wanted to know what's there because that jo- that did not quite jive with some of the subjective voices I was hearing from people taking them. So I wanted, you know, I wanted to know what's going on there. That I was fortunate to live very close to the McGill University Medical Library, which is an extraordinary place. And I just spent countless hours there reading up everything I could on the antipsychotics and the neuroleptics. And, and I wrote up my observations, and then I wrote a paper, I think it was 1983, and I sent it off to some journal, Journal of Mind and Behavior. And the editor and the other reviewers liked it, and I think it was published in, um, in 1986. And, and I was already then a PhD student. And I already written other papers. Uh, the first paper I wrote was a critique of uh, involuntary commitment. And I think that was published in 1978. I was writing, uh, uh, wondering about why social workers are enlisted in collaborating in forced psychiatric interventions. I just didn't understand that. You know, so I started from first principles, like, what are we doing? What is that for? What justifies it? So I was aware, but I I got into focusing on the antipsychotics. And then I went to do my PhD specifically to study with Professor then, Stephen Siegel, who was... um, following up a large cohort of people that he had first interviewed in the early 70s when they were being deinstitutionalized from psychiatric institutions. And and I went to study the effect of antipsychotics on their social integration, which was kind of a hip term at the time. And so I bored ever more deeply into the topic of the antipsychotics from You know, historical perspectives, pharmacological perspectives, anthropological, economic perspectives, power perspectives. That was my PhD. And then that pursued, I I got an academic job. And then in a stay in France in the mid-1990s, I I, I wrote a number of essays on antipsychotics, including this sort of uh, one which was really uh, putting together the critique. And it was called A Critique of the Use of Neuroleptic Drugs in Psychiatry. And it was published in some well-known book at the time called From Placebo to Panacea. And it came out, I think, in 1996. And and that was, uh, you know, putting together all I had been reading and interviewing about and getting from primary sources in different countries about the antipsychotics and what they were actually producing as we could document rather than just as people were saying they're doing even before that in the late 80s already getting involved with survivor groups in Quebec and then and that led to writing the french language book co-authoring that book a critical handbook of psychiatric drugs that was in 1995 and then and that was maybe the fir- one of the first books that really focused on coming off psychiatric drugs. Mm-hmm. Had a whole chapter on withdrawal effects, how to come off drugs, and that is why Peter Bragan and I, in 1999, were able to write "Your Drug May Be Your Problem." So I had all this background too. He had his background with his critiques of neuroleptics already, mm-hmm. and um, and that's why we focused on coming off drugs and withdrawal, which I thought was was really the issue of the day at the time that put together a number of influences and things i did that got me ready to be uh, to be doing the, the work that i continue to do
0: yeah and it and it really puts into perspective that you were working on this for so many years and then to come out with several books that really critically look at the uh, the idea of how these drugs are affecting us and what it means to come off of them, what happens when you try to discontinue them? It's fascinating to me that these books were out there. You wrote these books in the nineties, the the one with Peter Regan in nineteen ninety nine, and yet it seems like somehow that never made its way into our sort of culture of hey, maybe people want to get off these drugs. Hey, what's going to happen when that when that does happen?
1: Why well, do you- eventually it, it it made it, it made its way. I think you would ask me a question about why do you think your, your critique didn't punch a bigger hole mm-hmm. in, in the yeah. sort of prevailing wisdom? You had sent me that question. And I thought about that. And, and, and it just, I mean, it's obvious to me that it couldn't punch a hole by definition because the prevailing wisdom was not then and is not now based on science, science as a system to rigorously test your hypotheses and reject them if they fail continuously to pass the test. But it's not based on science. It's based on other things that we can explore. It's based on, on, on the acceptance of, the, of, of what psychiatry does for people. The system is not based on critical thinking. So the critique, I don't think, would punch a hole in the prevailing wisdom, certainly not in the short term. Focused critiques of psychiatry, by definition, they, they don't punch holes. But what they do is they get recycled incognito within psychiatry. It's like a digestion process. Psychiatry feeds on critiques, it ignores them, first of all, and then incorporates them into its own practice and passes them off as the natural evolution of the discipline, but doesn't give any credit to who does it and never provides an accounting for why the critique was not accepted when it was first voiced. But the critique, I dare say, was prescient. Um, It really uh, announced that the whole floundering of the evidence-based, quote-unquote, giving of neuroleptics, which the Cady studies in the mid-2000s, they publicized widely that the whole the whole thing was floundering. The evidence base just was not there, and I was announcing that very very specifically in my critique. You know, a decade earlier, and also I think it really helped to reinforce both earlier critiques, like those by Peter Bragan, for example, and a handful of neurologists, and then the later critiques that came by David Healy, then Bob Whitaker, Joanna Moncrief. All of us somehow reinforced each other there and began to. It was part of mounting this opposition, which is now pretty conventional thinking in, psyche, in critical psychiatric circles. Yeah. This whole of and it it um, it really, I think, emphasized the view of drug effects as global states that completely defy reification into therapeutic effects and side effects. And I think that's what my my critique emphasized that at every step of the way. We're dealing with quite global effects that, you know, if you have the power you're going to use to say that this is a therapeutic effect and this one is an unfortunate side effect. When from my perspective, they all look to be affecting the person Mm -hmm. and there was no you know, the decision to say this is therapeutic and this is adverse or side was a, um, a political decision. Could you give um, an example
0: of, uh, of how specifically a drug might have effects that are called therapeutic and called side effects? The, the of-
1: antipsychotics are a good example. The stimulants to during an acute crisis, anything that's going to slow a person down will look to those around the person most of the time in the family or the physician as calming them when it's just, but the person would feel them probably differently. But they would look that way and it'd say there, that's the therapeutic effect of the drug. Look, it's, uh, it's uh, quieting them. They're not voicing their, their delusion. The drug's working. Two, three months later, that, sustaining that effect is turning the person into a vegetable. At that moment, we start saying, oh my God, look, that's akinesia, that's Parkinsonism. Um, and, and so the same effect in one situation will be desirable. But over time, that same effect is no longer desirable because the person can't function. So that, that's a simple example, which, which, which I think is obvious. The same thing was akathisia, which is that sort of um, often drug-induced uh, hyperactivity and, and really preoccupation with 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 your discomfort which makes you uh half the time unable to address anything else going on outside of you you are completely obsessed with what is happening to you and you're pacing back and forth you want to jump out of yourself and so that itself is uh, in certain situations is looked as as it's therapeutic in other words because the person is unable to do anything else Mm -hmm. they're contained that way Uh, After a little while, when they're back home and they're in that state, everyone is panicking, saying, what is happening to them? And so this is also the same effect being looked at differently. This notion of the effect, either at a different time in the process or from different eyes, being defined quite differently, though it is the same effect of the drug, that to me illustrates that the effects don't come packaged in molecules. They are really interpreted according to the needs of the participants in the situation. And the one who has the most power will impose their definition of what is happening. I see that happening with a lot of drugs, especially drugs that have quick effects like stimulants or even benzodiazepines. Mm-hmm. Uh, benzodiazepine, it's, um, it's, the, the, it's good when, when you're trying to go to sleep, but when you're getting up in the middle of the night, if you're losing your balance, then it's considered an adverse effect. But it's the same thing happening
0: to you. There's something in what you said about sort of the authority of the psychiatric establishment to make those definitions, something about like the person who has the most power gets to define what is a therapeutic effect. And often that's not the person who's taking the drug. Yeah.
1: And and, and you can see that even if uh, when I was, would look for definitions of side effect uh, way back when in the literature, it, it, it was always defined as uh, as something that was unintended. Well, unintended, okay, fine, by whom? Who intends, who does not intend? So right away, it brings us right back into social relations, interpersonal relations. Something is an unintended, you know, from nowhere, down from the sky. People have intentions.
0: So I believe you've also done some work about forced treatment in psychiatry. How do you think that plays into the authority that psychiatry has?
1: In the early 1990s, I reviewed Hundreds, if not thousands, of decisions in Canada from administrative tribunals that were ruling on whether someone who was committed could have their release. So I, I obtained all of the the written decisions justifying that, and and I and and just wrapping my head around the circular logic between mental illness, dangerousness, and drug treatment. But it was always this logic that they're dangerous because they're not taking their medications, therefore they're mentally ill. Or they're mentally ill because they're dangerous because they're not taking their medication. Or they're not taking their medication, therefore they're dangerous, and so that makes them mentally ill. It was no matter which way you looked, the person was always, there was no way out. And then also around that time, I was an advocate as an independent uh, expert in, in some of those hearings. I would go on behalf of people who were trying to gain their freedom. So, my work has been sort of looking from the outside and being somewhat involved in it. The authority to coerce is is fundamental to psychiatry's authority in society. First of all, it's given to every psychiatrist as a psychiatrist. It's almost a kind of a unique rite of passage. And, And I would bet that if you don't participate in some coercion and if you're not observed to participate in coercion, frank coercion, I don't think you can become a psychiatrist. Now I'll, I'll, you know, I'll kind of get, you know, pronounce that as as something that I'm not certain about. Mm -hmm. But I'm guessing that that's the case. And if it's not the case in one country, it's probably the case in another. So I would say that that authority given to psychiatrists, in my view, it's the basis for all of psychiatry's influence in society for all its reputation for all its influence theoretically on the radio, even things that don't seem connected to commitment. We accept psychiatry's authority and influence in many other spheres because we give them that authority to intervene involuntarily. And that influence, that power is all the greater because it's rarely acknowledged by all the rest of us who depend on that power Mm -hmm. to control people who bother us in our midst. That person creates or opens cracks in the fundamental institutions of society, Mm -hmm. the family, school, the workplace. That person often lays them bare. And psychiatry is the institution that comes to the rescue, often enthusiastically. And I wanna stress that no matter the main political system in a modern society, whether it's been totalitarian, or communist, or social democrat, or socialist, or neoliberal, or free-willing capitalist, psychiatry, always enthusiastically, Serves that system to handle the deviant or to justify how that system is going to handle the deviant. Whether the deviant wants to emigrate out of the country or wants to emigrate out of life, psychiatry is always there, no matter the political system. So, involuntary psychiatric interventions to me are really part of the fabric of social life. You know, they're embedded in there, they're a glue. They hold a lot of our society together, for better or worse.
0: I feel like that's a a huge statement, but a statement that sort of takes in the entire concept of what is sanity and what is madness.
1: As I said, as I I heard myself say about opening cracks, the the person that that I call the mad person, opening cracks in in the fabric, artists do that too. Artists open these cracks up, can provoke us dramatically. Of course, there are differences. Maybe the, the, the person we call mad, um, does it unprompted? Does it right inside those institutions themselves? It's like performance art squared. It's right there. It's right in the family that the crack is open. Whereas the artist, maybe we, we have the luxury or has the luxury to be away from it and to kind of show it to us,
0: not right in our face. And so then I, I think from the beginning of what we were talking about, there's a way that giving psychiatry that authority, uh, which is, it sounds like inextricably linked to the society as a whole, also serves to reify psychiatry's authority over a lot of other things.
1: Yes, that's, that, that's almost exactly my point. Because of that, um, authority we give psychiatry to handle the deviants, quote unquote. We give them a pass over everything else. They get a free pass on their theories. So, you know, psychiatry tries hard to portray itself as, you know, medical pioneers probing synapses, surfing the genome, but there's no results there at all. So, despite that, um, we accept their discourse. It's almost like we politely nod and accept that, yes, you you can say that. And we don't ask them for the evidence. We, we don't um, say, but you've continually failed to support this hypothesis. You haven't found the chemical imbalance. You did not find the aberrant gene. In fact, you're saying it's all the genes right now. So So, you know, we never hold them to account for what has been proposed as the test for their hypothesis. We give them a free pass because we need them to keep the social fabric together. That's my point. Authority is based on many things like their knowledge of people or maybe the wisdom of people or maybe their you know, their example or, or, or their power. The authority that rests on, on your sheer power and that to me is the determining one. That kind of takes over all the other types of authority and we give them a free pass on those other
0: authorities. So in the interests of I mean, your work that's somewhat critical of the of the medical model of psychiatry uh, and is critical of some of that authority that psychiatry has forced treatment, what is what is the goal that we can have if well, somebody's gonna give them that pass?
1: Well, the goal is that we, we, we should try to understand that. We probably need coercion. Um, it's, I, I have a hard time imagining a coercion-free society. I think coercion is necessary to maintain social groups as a final measure. The question is who should be coercing? And so as a member of a helping profession, so-called helping profession, then I don't believe that I should be the one to have that power to coerce. I think that, um, and if I have that power to coerce, it should be clearly announced. I should be wearing a kind of a uniform or a stem that identifies me as a coercer, not necessarily as a healer.
0: So sort of like to to make the analogy to like a legal system, there are are laws that help to uh, keep society together in a particular way. And the, the population knows those laws. And when they, when they break those laws, then there's a coercion. Something needs to happen to ensure that the, that the laws of society are allowed. Yes. And then the coercion that's employed by psychiatry is different from that in that the laws aren't really necessarily clear. The agents of coercion are also sometimes unclear. Yeah, it's
1: like a sh- the, the, the shapeshifter. Yeah. You know, the person is there for you, have some distress, and you might go see someone, and, and that's a story, of course, that you or I have heard countless times, that uh, I went to see them for this problem. Next thing I knew, I was locked up in this room yeah. by that person. Mm-hmm. And that comes from blurring the role of the therapist with the role of the coercer. Mm-hmm. They're important functions, but they can't be in the same person. And so that leads to a critique of, of all of the interventions we have that try to blend you know, the kind of the the juvenile court model of your, at once, a father and a judge and a helper and the doctor and the probation officer and the babysitter all together in one. We we don't know what to expect. It becomes arbitrary. And we don't know why you change roles instantly. And you justify it on the basis of some science that I don't know, or is not
0: accessible to me. So I wanted to ask a little bit more specifically about Uh, Some of your papers that we recently covered on Madden America, in those articles, you make the case that withdrawal symptoms confound a large portion of the studies that are purporting to demonstrate psychiatric drugs' effectiveness in relapse prevention. So I was wondering, what does this withdrawal confounding factor mean for the evidence base that psychiatry promotes for the use of these drugs, both short and long-term?
1: Many types of studies in psychiatry, both... Short term and long term use deliberate discontinuation from drugs as a kind of a paradigmatic procedure, this foundational procedure to reach all sorts of conclusions about how useful patented psychoactive drugs are to people. So, deliberate drug discontinuation, deliberate removal of a drug is used in all kinds of studies to reach conclusions about how useful it is to remain on drugs. Yeah. And so these studies in the popular mind and in the professional minds too, they hammer, they hammer away the message that people with problems need to take drugs and especially need to remain on drugs indefinitely. The fact is, deliberate drug discontinuation, especially abrupt discontinuation is absolutely not equivalent to no drug treatment. So to use such a procedure and to use it most of the time, not transparently, to just kind of hint and not give details as to how you're using this deliberate drug discontinuation, to conclude that no drug treatment is worse than drug treatment, at best, it's, it's like disingenuous. Withdrawal symptoms from taking away drugs overlap with the treated symptoms, the symptoms of your distress that got you on drugs in the first place. And so if your aim is to conduct a study to promote a drug, you're not going to focus on the withdrawal symptoms. You're going to ignore withdrawal symptoms rather than identify them. You're going to exploit this lack of consensus in the field the lack of clear, clear definition of what are these strange stuff that's coming out when you're withdrawing the drug well let's just call it relapse rather than really dig into it and while not too many people are talking about it all the better let's just continue to do business as usual in these studies that's a problem and and the other side of the coin is that on the clinical side the practice side this neglect, this ignorance of the withdrawal symptoms, leads the therapists to misrepresent to clients that coming off drugs cautiously may have some real good, positive consequences. So you see, you see what I'm trying to say here is that there's a dark side of withdrawal that's being exploited in the drug studies, and there's a po- positive side of withdrawal that's being hidden. the clinical world all i can say is big confounds everywhere big challenges to the evidence base as usual it's it's always been like this this is the business that i've been observing for decades and so um, the issue withdrawal confounding just means that a lot of what passes as the strength of your mental disorder that needs to be contained is actually a function of how drugs are withdrawn from you. Mm -hmm. Now, despite what I've just said now, I don't want to say that I accept everything that somebody says this is withdrawal effect. I do think there's a sociology of withdrawal and an anthropology of withdrawal that's yet to be written. But I'm saying that withdrawal is a word that I don't want to work 100% to also reify and say that because somebody calls something a withdrawal effect of a drug, no matter who, who they are, whether they're a user or a prescriber, that I'm going to accept that on faith. I want to see what exactly is that and what does it signify with the relationship you have with that drug. So I'm still questioning what is a withdrawal symptom really. And and so, but I do recognize that there is this big black hole of this lack of consensus of looking at probable withdrawal effects, and um, that is screwing up the drug studies and the evidence base uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, denying patients from very sensible, common-sensible ways to taper their drugs, and feel better.
0: So you've uh, just put out a couple of pretty major papers on that subject. Do you feel like the conventional narrative about this is starting to flounder in the public mind?
1: I think that in line with this notion I have that psychiatry regularly recycles critical ideas, Mm -hmm. kind of takes them in, the whole issue of drug discontinuation is is currently now kind of being staked out as this professional turf issue in some way. you know, besides geriatric medicine, I think psychiatry for decades had practically nothing to say about deprescribing, except take your meds and so people are rushing in to fill a space they see as as some niche they, they could be filling, and the media is following. But typically the angle seems to be that how, how do we bolster the medical authority? But the, the fact is that that almost all of the solid practical knowledge about coming off psychiatric drugs comes from completely non-professional, consumer-centered uh, consumer circles. Mm-hmm. Almost everything we understand about, you know, micro tapering and going slow, that has not been part of any real strong professional knowledge in any discipline I know. What that means to me is that um, I'm not sure if the narrative is really changing about drugs. I think that there there are always narratives and counter narratives that are going on at the same time. We see accelerating the movement to, to make illicit drugs licit. Or we say, oh, look, uh, ketamine is now approved FDA for depression, or they're doing a clinical trial of psilocybin, for example. Everything gets recycled. Licit becomes illicit, illicit becomes licit, The categories change, the language changes, and then new products come in and they go through the, the, the cycle again. So it's hard to tell if the narrative is changing about drugs per se. But uh, is the narrative about psychiatric power, psychiatric influence, is that changing? Possibly it is changing now. I think that Madden America, for example, is is a good example of ordinary enterprising individuals using information technology to, to disseminate, to change the channels of construction of information and dissemination information. We always face changes in how institutions are seen. And psychiatry's reputation generally is always mixed. I find it's sometimes a subject of like ridicule or we don't take it seriously, while at the same time we respect it or we're in awe of it. And this these these counter-influences are happening simultaneously.
0: I'm curious about kind of what your what your hopes for the future of your work are, if there's any research that you're that's coming up for you that you wanted to talk about and kind of how that might play into the over our overarching goal of criticism of the authority of psychiatry.
1: What I'm thinking about, I think a lot these days about the power of nature, the power of green spaces, the power of gardens to calm us, to sort of heal us, to center us, to situate us in our context and maybe even paradoxically to bring the best of us As social beings. So I just want um, like mental health, if that means anything, to mean that we respect planet Earth, Mm -hmm. our only home. That to me is more important than any of the uh, of the mental health and psychiatric issues. The students I see they've not encountered, rarely have they encountered, any serious critiques of psychiatry or the mental health ideology they think you know mental health or serious mental illness they think those are categories of nature they've been steeped into this ideology so I'm glad they're asking me questions cuz you know I'm an educator and my task is to present my views and then help them to you know attend to their own thinking so they can challenge their own views I'm, I'm just concerned that uh, that many of the jobs they, they will go into will expect them to take these these categories, these concepts as categories of nature, will expect them to not to be so challenging. But again, that's part of, of the way things go. So I'm not pessimistic. Uh, I'm not particularly optimistic. To inverse a famous title of a book by Paul Watzlawick, the
0: situation is serious but not hopeless well thank you very much for uh, what has been a really enlightening i hope so <laughs> i really appreciate that thank you for listening to the madden america podcast visit maddenamerica.com for more news views and updates